0: From PRN, this is Alana Castro-Gilliard.
1: Hi, welcome. My name is Dr. Adrienne Gentry. I am a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist that practices in mostly Roanoke, Virginia with Carilion Virginia Tech School of Medicine. I also have an adjunct faculty position with UNC Fertility as I do all of the in vitro fertilization of for our patients down at UNC Fertility in Raleigh, North Carolina.
0: I'm so excited to have you today. REI is kind of a topic that we don't learn a lot about in medical school, but um, certainly interesting. So I would love for you to give us an overview of the initial workup for a couple that's having trouble conceiving and things like, do you screen both male and female or do you work on just female as an OB-GYN? Yeah, so if you could give us a little overview, that would be great. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. First of all, thanks
1: for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, As you know, I'm a fellow VCOM grad, so I was very thrilled to have you ask me to do this. So yeah, so it's a really, it's a really good question. When a couple comes to us who've been referred by their general OBGYN or their family medicine primary care provider, or in fact, they can refer themselves, we generally do the complete fertility evaluation, which includes the female and male partner. Starting with the female, we at first try to decide whether or not the patient is ovulating on her own. And generally, that's by asking her questions about her menstrual history. We then, followed by that, do evaluations of the tubes. So we want to make sure that the tubes are open. The tubes are, need to be open because the egg and sperm get together in the tube, right? So fertilization occurs in the tube. And there's only about an 18-hour window that fertilization can occur each month. So it's really important that the tubes are open and that they're normal, that the integrity of the tube is normal. Following that, we generally evaluate the uterine cavity. We want to make sure that the uterine cavity is normal. There's nothing inside the uterus that's been acquired, such as a uterine polyp or fibroid. That could prevent embryo implantation or further embryo growth. Um, And we also look at the shape of the uterus as well, make sure that there's no you know, obvious uterine anomalies. And then finally, we order a semen analysis on the partner. Now, this is all done at the same time, right? So, it's not like we do step A, step B, step C. We we generally do it kind of all at once so that we can get a complete picture. Um, Most of the time, I check an anti-malarian hormone on my patients. That hormone is a hormone that's made in the granulosa cells of all of our eggs. And it is a marker of ovarian reserve. So, it gives us an idea of how many eggs the patient has and a lot of times that helps us with treatment dosing. Um, And that's generally the workup is, you know, checking on, you know, obtaining whether or not the woman's ovulating regularly, whether her tubes are open, uterus is normal, and what kind of sperm we're working with.
0: And then does that kind of end up leading what you recommend in terms of available treatments for infertility, or is there one that's always the clear first?
1: That's a great question. So absolutely. So the evaluation allows us to then kind of you know, fine tune what our treatment is. Now, ultimately, in vitro fertilization is always going to be your best chance of pregnancy, all right? Regardless of age or diagnosis, it is always going to be your best chance of pregnancy, right? Um, All the other treatment options we have are really never going to provide patients with a chance of pregnancy above their age-related chance, okay? So, the... um you know, the other treatments other than IVF are overcoming some of other, you know, potentially diagnoses, right? So if the patient is not ovulating regularly, well, then she's not going to get pregnant if she's not ovulating. So we restore her ovulation with ovulation induction agents. Restoring her ovulation will then put her at her baseline chance of success based on her age, right? If, for example, the sperm is a little bit low, the count, or say the motility is a little bit slower, you know, doing an insemination, taking the sperm and putting in the uterus is going to get the sperm a lot closer to the tube with the hopes of getting the sperm and the egg together. Again, that treatment is not going to increase their chances of pregnancy above the woman's age chance. IVF, however, goes above and beyond the age related chance um, of a natural conception, if you will.
0: So we've moved past the the point of now someone's come in and uh, they're seeking treatment, but fertility can be such a sensitive topic and such a personal topic for people. So how do you approach conversations about fertility without making patients feel that they're failing at their womanhood or manhood or at an essential part that what they might consider?
1: Yeah. So it's really important to make the patient and partner, well, but they're both patients, Know that I'm there for them. I'm hearing them and that they're important to me. They also need to know that they didn't do anything to cause this. They're not broken and that it's way more common than people think, right? So one in eight couples experience infertility. 15% of people um, have trouble getting pregnant. So it's way more common than people think. So then, you know, I first start with that, that they that they didn't cause this. Um, and that many times with treatment, you know, we can get them to where they want to be.
0: That's great. That's a great way to frame it for them. Um, mm-hmm. I've known of a lot of people who have felt ashamed. And so it's a good thing to normalize that. Right. Um, so one of the things I've recently started, or I guess a long time ago now, I feel like I've started my third year rotations. And one of the things that a lot of physician couples have shared with me is that they've struggled with infertility. And that was kind of surprising to me. Um, but they usually tie it to the fact that they've waited until they've finished their training. Mm-hmm. Would you say whether, would, could you say whether you've seen an increased pattern of infertility treatments with medical professionals or is this just general population is like this as well? Yeah. So it's not
1: necessarily medical professionals. It's just women who are professionals, right? So, you know, female lawyers, female professors, you know, researchers, you know, physicians, All women who have, you know, kind of gone into, you know, a career where they are in high demand. Yeah. And so, you know, they're not ready. Women just aren't ready yet to have a child and to have a family that their career is important to them. And then they get to a point where they're like, okay, I'm ready. And, and, And what I find is that people don't their providers aren't telling them that you know, your chance of pregnancy is gonna go down as you get older, right? So in our 20s is when it is the best chance for us to get pregnant. And that's when women are in school studying, right? Starting their careers. They're starting their careers and it's not, you know, quote unquote, a good time for them to have a child, right? So there's all these preconceived notions that when a woman starts her career, it's not appropriate for her to then go ahead and have a child and be on maternity leave, right? So there's that stress that that woman is under. So she waits, she holds on. She she wants to make sure she's making a name for herself in her career. Then eventually once, once that's happened, sometimes it's too late, right? Sometimes the woman's 38, 39, 40, never been pregnant. And the chances just aren't as good. It doesn't mean that the chances are obsolete, right? It, I we get patients pregnant at that age, but the trouble is, is that I think that they're not counseled on. Listen, this is the best chance or time for you to get pregnant. You may struggle as you if you wait and when you get older.
0: So would you say, or do you even say to your patients that there is a right time to get pregnant, whether that be biological or non-biological, especially with professionals?
1: Yeah. So like the the physician in me would always say, it's always better for you to try to get pregnant before you're 35 years old, right? Right. But you have to understand, like as an infertility, I'm seeing the infertility patients. I'm not seeing the 38 and 39 year olds who get pregnant on their own and don't need me. Right. So I'm, I, that's a recall bias. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, if it was my friend, I would be like, you know, you got to do what's right and do when you're ready. Right. But I think at all bottom Santa, you know, there are tons of studies out there that show that women didn't know that there was, you know, a decreased chance of pregnancy as you got older. They didn't know that. I see women who are 42 and 43 and have no idea. That their chance of conception is less than 5%. And I always hear them say, I wish I had known this earlier. I wish I had known this earlier.
0: Now, this is a little bit off the book because I haven't sent you this question, but how would you encourage people to get this information out without assuming that this is what every woman wants?
1: Well, that's a good point, because not every woman wants to be a mom, right? Or at first they don't, and then later in life they realize, oh, maybe I do want to have children, right? So, I mean, it's, it's all about kind of educating all providers, but it's very difficult, right? Because, like, you, you also don't want to assume that that the patient wants to have children. I think like a blanket statement at an annual exam would be really good. Hey, listen, you're 30 years old. I don't know if you're considering wanting to have children in the future, but I just think it's important that you know, as you get older, the chance of pregnancy goes down. And it's not anything anyone does. It has all to do with the quality of our eggs. As we get older, the quality of our eggs goes down and there's nothing we can do to change that. So maybe, although again, it re- you know, some patients may not perceive that well, right? So I don't know if there's a right or wrong to any of that.
0: Yeah. I guess you kind of have to try and read your patients and see what they want and what their values are.
1: Exactly. Or, you know, something, another thought would be like having like a little, <laughs> so this is kind of silly. So when I take my kids for their annual exams each year, they hand me this little like pamphlet that says what to expect for an eight, nine-year-old and what should they be doing? So maybe we should be like coming up with these pamphlets, you know, the primary care provider, when they come in for their 30 year your old well visit, if you will. Right. And, you know, a cute little pearl that says, did you know, you know, as a woman gets older, her chance of pregnancy goes down. Something like that. I don't know.
0: I guess that that's a call to all students working right now. If you're interested in the field, <laughs> make a watch. I mean, yeah,
1: maybe that's something we could do together. <laughs> I, just
0: I, love just <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just um, now. I love that. So you've spoken about a lot of your patients are in that higher 30s range. How do you counsel these patients that are over the age of 35 on the risk of the term advanced maternal age and pregnancy? Yeah. So,
1: you know, it's, I hate that term, Um, probably mostly because I'm (laughs) advanced maternal age. Um, So it's a little personal. Um, But, you know, so the chance of, of, you know, um, risk to pregnancy as a woman gets older is present, but it's not like, and and, and apparently significant, otherwise they wouldn't say it, right? But you know, uh, the difference between 34 and 35 is not that big, right? Now, the difference between 35 and 40, sure, there's a difference, right? So we know when a woman gets to be 40, her chance of miscarriage is almost 50%, and that's because of the risk of, you know, having a baby with some type of genetic abnormality, some type of aneuploidy, right? That's one of the major risks is having a child. And then as a woman gets older, you know, she's at higher risk for high blood pressure, diabetes. You know pre eclampsia preterm labor and delivery, so I always counsel them on that um when they're thirty five and older. I always offer them referral to the maternal fetal medicine doctors who are the high risk doctors just for you know more in depth counseling. They have actual real numbers that they can share with those patients, so that's generally what I offer them.
0: That makes sense. Give them the information and let them do with it um so One of the things that I've personally found as a frustration and my experience is that a lot of female medical students are told more often than their male counterparts that they should factor having children into their career trajectory. Like whenever I've said, oh, I want to be an OB-GYN, they're like, oh, well, you should reconsider that because that's a very difficult career and maybe you want to have children. Whereas my partner, who's also going into medicine, into ob has never been told that before. Well,
1: right. So that goes back to gender, right? Like, right. So, you know, they are A, assuming that you want to have a child, um, B, you know, um, OB-GYN gets a bad rap, right? They know that, you know, that it's a, it's a lot of A lot of hours, a lot of work. Um, Hey, I had two children in residency. You know, whether or not that was the right thing to do, I don't know. There's never a right time, okay? You got to do it when it's right for you. Period, end of story, all right? Is it going to be hard? Heck yeah, it's going to be hard. It was really hard in residency. But now my children are eight and 10, and I'm in attending, and I'm really enjoying them. And I'm able to go to their extracurricular activities and so forth. I'm the one that knows I wasn't around much when they were babies. They don't know that and that's how I get through it. But everyone's different, right? So there's not ever a right time. And you got to go with what you want to do. If you want to be an OBGYN, you be an OBGYN and you you figure out how to have a family. right? You can do both. It it you can. Now, you can't be an amazing OBGYN, an amazing mom, you know, an amazing partner, an amazing friend. You can't be 100% of all of that, right? That's your like balance work-life balance yeah but you know some days I give more to being an REI to being a mom and other days I give more to being a mom than an REI and I find that that results in an even balance does that make sense I don't know that I necessarily answered your question on the social norms of going into your rotations and, you know, advisors and such saying you need to reconsider what specialty you choose and if you want to have a child. Um, I don't think that's a fair statement. Um, And I think that that is potentially coming from experience, right? So if someone has, you know, gone into a surgical specialty and had children and it was really, really hard on them, they're maybe just trying to protect you. Right. Um, but I would say, you know, you made the decision to be a physician. It's going to be difficult regardless of what specialty you go into. Um, and you shouldn't, you know, you should be able to do both, but I don't, I, I, you know, it's just, I've never heard, I, well, I would never say, that to a student, number one. Number two, I certainly, you know, men, okay. Well, men don't really have a, you know, a decreased chance of pregnancy until they're in their 50s, right? So maybe that's where that's coming. Maybe they're like, oh, I don't need to worry about it. The other thing is, is that, again, back to the social norms, you're thinking the woman is going to carry the child, right? deliver you're going to have maternity leave it's a lot more demanding on the woman you know at least the pregnancy and the immediate postpartum period so that's probably also why they don't say those things to the man right
0: yeah it's a a mix of things it sounds like there is some
1: i mean and it's again it's just back to the gender roles right that those like you know gender roles that have been like instituted for years years and years and years and years and years that you know Women should stay at home, and men are out working, right? And I think, regardless of how hard we try to change those um, thoughts, some people just can't, can't. I don't know, subconsciously, even, right?
0: Well, I think we're doing it. I, you're obviously a young professional and doing that and accomplishing. It, so, right. but, but you know, I think that. I mean. It's hard for men too, right? Like
1: it's hard for men to have children. They don't want to miss out on their kids either. They don't, you know, it's all the same things. They don't want to miss out on, you know, bottle feeding the baby and, you know, being there and and helping their partner. So, um, you know, they have just as much of a role in child rearing as the woman does. Um, And so I would say both genders you know, you gotta do what's right and when it when it's right.
0: So maybe it's something that should be said to both, that you could take into account your lifestyle and not targeting. Targeting is an aggressive word for that, but yeah, that is. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, I I truly think that anyone who has is saying that is saying it out of you know a, a care and and just from experience, right? You know, from experience and trying to help you, but it's hard because you have, you know, nobody can understand experience until they're living it. Yeah. Um, and so again, back to the, you got to do what you want to do. You're going to do it for the rest of your life. Um, You got to be happy doing it.
0: Yeah. I think that that's a fair statement. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, my, It is. It's hard to balance all of it. I, I don't envy the, um, Amount that you guys have to balance. I know it feels like a lot as a medical student, but it only keeps on adding. (laughs) It sure does. (laughs) Um, So my next question for you is about uh, freezing eggs. That's that uh, I've heard suggested to women in their 20s who are professionals that are thinking that they want something like that. And they want a family in the future. What is your take on freezing eggs, especially for those that are young, training, and that want to have children in terms of the cost and the effect, like the efficacy of all of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great opportunity for women um, who, you know, don't currently want to have children, but know that they want to have children in the future. They're not really sure when. Um, I think I, I do. I think it's great. Now, they have to be counseled really well to know that this is not a for sure thing just because you freeze, say, 20 eggs doesn't mean that you are definitely going to get a baby out of that, right? You know, many studies show you need anywhere from 30 to 40 eggs to result in one live birth. Um, so, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for people, for for women who can afford it and are, are, are able to take the time to do it, um, but with the understanding that it is not a hundred percent guarantee, okay? And with the understanding that when they are ready to conceive, that they should try first on their own. Okay. But then if they didn't, they can't get pregnant, then they can use the eggs that they have. Right. So it's kind of like an insurance policy. Yeah. You pay for it, but you hope you never have to use it. But I do, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a great, I think it's great. Okay.
0: So what do you think are the barriers then for patients when they want to receive care from you or any sort of REI specialist?
1: Yeah, there are unfortunately a lot of barriers. I think that there are barriers for finance, right? So, you know, 90% of insurance companies don't cover this. So it's very costly. Even the evaluation, the workup that we spoke about at the beginning is is a couple thousand dollars if their insurance won't cover it. Um, You know, and then the treatments can be quite expensive from hundreds to thousands of dollars. And again, I'm not promising them that they're going to get pregnant and have a baby, right? Don't forget that. Um there's also barriers, you know, referral patterns, so sometimes, you know, people don't get referred when they need to. Um s- some people don't realize that they can just make an appointment that they don't have to have a referral. Some people are scared. They don't know they're they're they they realize they're not getting pregnant and they're scared to find out why they're not getting pregnant, right? They don't necessarily want to know cuz then they're worried that, that it can't be fixed or something like that, you know. Um you kind of had mentioned it earlier, they feel, you know, they're they're afraid to kind of face the fact that they're not getting pregnant. Um, <clears throat> so I would say that those are the majority of the barriers.
0: Yeah, I've heard a lot of my patients say that insurance has been a big barrier for them, which is unfortunate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Now, there are some states in this country that mandate that um, fertility be covered, which is really cool. There are a lot of great you know, companies that also cover um, infertility treatment, such as Starbucks. Um, so we have patients who work at Starbucks to get some coverage. Obviously, Facebook, Google, you know, all of those are really, you know, good at that.
0: So I hear a lot of career changes happening in the near future. <laughs> or part-time jobs, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then another question that I had for you was: once someone gets pregnant, How long do you follow them for?
1: Yeah, we usually, we call it graduate. They graduate from our office. It's always bittersweet, right? Because we see them so much. We establish these amazing relationships with these patients. I feel like they're my friends, right? Well, I know everything about them because I'm seeing them so often. But we graduate them between eight to nine weeks. And then they go on to their general OBGYN. That's
0: great. (laughs) I love the terminology, graduate. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other end of things, if somebody's unsuccessful at getting pregnant or they've had a few miscarriages, how do you counsel these patients? Are there any sort of national or community resources that you lead them to?
1: Yeah. So there's actually an infertility um, awareness group here in the Roanoke area um, that I always recommend that that patients join. There's also like a um, neonatal loss group that also um, has, you know, some support for women who've had recurrent miscarriages. I think, you know, first and foremost, telling the patient it's not their fault, you know, so there's kind of two different things you're asking me. One is loss, and one is not getting pregnant, right? So those are two very different things, um, but still ultimately not getting what they want, right? Um, for my, my recurrent loss patients, you know, I generally talk to them about You know, even though you've had this many losses, you still have a good, bright future of having a child. And we try to figure out what's going on and why it's happening, and try something different. Um, The most important thing that they hear is that it's not their fault. That you know, a lot of women get worried that because they're so stressed out, they caused their miscarriage. And you know, I just, I just have to help them believe that that's not the case, um, that they did not cause their own miscarriage because they have so much guilt. Um, so a lot of counseling is is just listening to them and telling them it's not their fault and that, you know, depending on what happened, you know, what are we, where are we going to go from here? They want to hear a plan. They want to know what can we do different? What can we try, right? Right there's this really nice graph that I generally show patients that say, you know, if you've had one miscarriage, this is your chance of having a live birth. If you have two miscarriages, this is your chance of having a live birth and so forth. And generally it doesn't really change chance of live birth until after four miscarriages. So that really encourages them to see that. Um, So that's typically what we do. And, you know, it's, it's rare that we can't get someone pregnant in our office. If we can, if we can go to, you know, the ultimate treatment, right?
0: Right. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, and then my final question for you is relevant to 2020 and 2021, especially with the release of vaccinations. Would you recommend that women seeking to get pregnant still get a COVID vaccine?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We tell all of our patients to get the COVID vaccine whenever they're available for it to get it. Yep. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, American Society for Reproductive Medicine all recommend that women get the vaccine. Mm
0: -hmm. Great. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. The questions in today's episode were written by Ryan Perry and Alana Castro-Gilliard. This episode was produced and hosted by Alana Castro-Gilliard and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.